Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We live more and more of our lives online. We rely on the internet as we work, interact with friends and loved ones, pay bills, stream videos, read the news, listen to music. We operate with the understanding that the data that traces these activities will not be abused now or in the future. But the data tracks we leave through our health information, the internet and social media, financial and credit information, personal relationships and public lives make us continuously prey to identity theft, hacking and even government surveillance. With a host of cultural differences as to how privacy is understood globally and in different religions, and with ceaseless technological advancements, privacy is an increasingly complex topic. In Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know, a new book out from Oxford University Press, University of Utah professors Leslie and John Francis examine what privacy can mean and why it's so important. We're going to be talking with them uh, today. Leslie Francis is a distinguished professor of philosophy and distinguished Alfred C. Emery Professor of Law at University of Utah, where she also serves as director of the Center for Law and Biomedical Sciences. John G. Francis is a professor of political science at the University of Utah. Together, they've co-authored a number of articles on the use of health information with a special emphasis on transparency and non-discrimination. They're going to be at the King's English Bookshop tonight, 7 o'clock, for reading and book signing. And they're joining us from KUER Studios in Salt Lake City. Um, Leslie Francis, do we have you with us? Yes, you do. Okay, great. Uh, good to have you with us. And John Francis, are you with us? Yes, I am. All right. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us uh, today. Um, interesting book, important, of course. This is part of an Oxford University uh, Press series, What Everyone Needs to Know. So privacy, a very complex topic, and you're... Uh, you're writing from law and political science perspective, professors, but you're, but but the uh, the level here is, I guess, uh, everyone, right? <laughs> you're trying to yes, trying to make concepts uh, available to everyone. That's the idea of this Oxford series to break very complex issues down into easily digestible questions and answers, so people can look up particular topics that might interest them and get a two to three page answer to it, but at the same time to do it in a way that is uh, reasonably high level, so it's accurate and thorough and gives you what you need to know. Do you have the book in front of you? I do, or uh, I should say we you, do. You do, okay. I, could one of you read the, the first two paragraphs from the preface? I think you set it up very well here. Certainly, I'd be delighted to. Yeah. Imagine you have a ring, round, smooth, and golden. When you slide it on your finger, you become invisible to everyone else. Thus, Tolkien wrote about the ring of Zoran, Plato about the ring of Gyges, and Richard Wagner about the ring of Alberic. If you put on the ring so you'd be invisible, would you have privacy or would you have something else? Would using the ring make your life better or worse? Would wearing the ring be good for you? Would you ever want to have such a ring? Would it be a bad thing for everyone else if you had such a ring? Perhaps so bad that they should want it buried at the bottom of a river for all time. Or imagine that you live in Bentham's Panopticon, where everyone may always be under observation, all of the time, without ever knowing when. Or George Orwell's 1984, with the ever-present suggestion that Big Brother is watching. 
Or imagine everyone just believes that they're being observed continuously. Would you have any privacy in such a world or none? Would you feel safer or threatened? Would it matter who or what was doing the observing, why they were doing it, and whether they kept exact records of what they were seeing? Would it be good for people or for societies to experiment with building panopticons to see how they could work? And then, of course, uh, we chose those uh, references to, to uh, uh, you know, popular culture because it, that sets up the kind of the far ends of the spectrum, right? What what if you were totally invisible, or what if everyone saw everything that you were ever doing? Exactly. Uh, and then you set up some some important questions later in the book. Um, what is privacy? Is it a private room? Is it control over your sexual life? Is it uh, does it matter whether the world knows what you had for breakfast, what grades you received in high school, whether you've been treated for HIV or cancer? Is it uh, is your privacy violated if search engines track you over the internet and give you ads about shoes, deals on hotel rooms, or restaurants you might like, and, and on and on. By the way, that last one I. I, I find Google so useful that I that I enter into that perhaps Faustian bargain, but I'm a little creeped out sometimes when I notice those ads tracking me very precisely. Uh, so, what what is the definition? Is is there a brief definition of privacy? Well, I'll take a quick start by saying actually there are many definitions of privacy. Yeah, I think what you could actually say is that. Privacy has many facets. In general, it seems to be a theme that goes through modern understandings of privacy is having some control over what people know about you or what you are inclined to share or some capacity to withdraw. So you can find that uh, often a complaint among refugees when they come to a new country, when they're fleeing another one, it's not a, so much a complaint as a lament, is that they're in a room where they're sharing it with many other people, and so they have no space to themselves. So in that sense, the spatial component becomes critical. Uh, and I think the I think one of the themes that kind of keep in mind here, I think, is that notion of some measure of autonomy. You choose to get advice on restaurants, now everyone tracks you as to the restaurants they think you would prefer. In some senses, you're gaining something, but you also know at some point you could simply say, I'm just going to talk to friends and not go online to figure out which restaurant I want. Um, but in that sense, you still have some measure of control over what you're doing in some way to, to elicit a certain amount of privacy that you may need. On the other hand, uh some people have made the point, and we think it's a correct one, that in addition, privacy is contextual. So take the restaurant example. If suddenly you stop going out to restaurants, you don't make any reservations for three months through open table, uh, and you charge a bunch of medical bills, what might somebody start to infer about you that you might not want them to know. Uh, people uh, hypothesize, actually, that changes in credit card spending behavior, changes in eating out behavior have been uh, 
tagged as markers of the suggestion that you might have uh, contracted or a family member might be experiencing a serious illness. So what looks like innocuous information when the question is just, you know, is it Italian or or is it Greek tonight, suddenly turns uh, much more sensitive when the question is, well, is she staying home because uh, uh, she's become gravely ill? Mm. Yeah, it's, it becomes more and more complex. By the way, um, you know, this is broken down kind of in bite-sized uh, chapters, uh, very readable, and with provocative uh, questions at the, the head of each chapter, so I'll... I'll just be stealing those and in some <laughs> points here to to ask you these questions. One that, uh, well, there's many that stood out to me. Uh, this one from uh, Chapter 2, do you own your personal information? Yeah, and I think that actually is, um, in many respects, um, you don't own your personal inf- information. It's part of the public record almost from the date of birth on. Um, in some cases, though, there has been a clear recognition that if people are using your information, for particularly for commercial purposes, that you may have some claim for its use. And and if think about ownership, uh, one way we typically think about ownership is you can make money off of something, and that's what John was just suggesting in the commercial context. But in some other contexts, the point might not be whether you can make money over it or out of it, but whether you control certain uses. Mm. And then that does vary. I mean, the the example that comes to mind, if you're walking in Paris and you're taking lots of pictures, you're first, you're excited to be there. And many of the pictures include pictures of French people on the street. Under French law, you're supposed to ask permission for every person that you're taking a picture of, even though that person isn't actually the subject of your particular photograph. So there are variations on how countries try to fence off some areas for privacy and other areas uh, there's, it seems to be totally random. I want to, you, and you treat this in the book, um, what are some of the differences between uh, how we treat uh, privacy in the U.S. and versus Europe? Yeah, well, I think one of the <clears throat> big differences is that Maybe I think it's actually a, a North Atlantic divide between the two continents. In Europe, under the European Union, there is uh, increased emphasis on the right to be forgotten. And that is, if there are some data in an archive and yet there is a Google link to get that information, it might be about a prior record of some some criminal activity or just something that's that you would like not to be revealed, you can file under your EU regulation and have the link deleted, not the record, but the link. Whereas in the United States, the general, we put more weight on the right to know, whether it's a, the life of a Hollywood actor or anything like that. Whereas in Europe, there's about 400,000 cases each year of people seeking to delete links. Hmm. And so there are a lot of people, particularly people who have, you know, know how to make the system work, who have maybe some local reputation that they can essentially um, keep, keep hidden from public inquiry or popular inquiry aspects of their lives. So I think um, 
we put more weight on the right to know in this country. And, partic- and I think maybe one other component, in Europe there's greater skepticism of the great social media firms uh, or the great search engine firms like Google or Facebook as holding information and using it for their own purposes. In this country, more of our attention is being focused on government use of resource of, of information data rather than on private firms. Mm. And underneath those two basic uh, approach differences, legally, in Europe now, there is an overarching regulation uh, with respect to privacy. So if it's your health information or your credit card information or your shopping information, whatever it is, as long as it's electronic, you can assume that the same protections apply. In the U.S., the way privacy law has developed, first of all, a lot of it is state law. Uh, So we've got different states with some different views. But even that said, um, U.S. privacy law is what people call sectoral. So different rules may apply depending on the kind of information and who has it. So our privacy structures have been created more by outrage in a particular area than by the kind of overarching commitment to principle that John was describing in the European Union. So there's some special rules about video records, video game rentals, because the Supreme Court justice got annoyed. Or actually, not a, somebody who was a candidate for uh, the court who never got confirmed, Justice Judge Bork. Uh, there are special rules about health information. There are special rules about some financial information. And there's basically very little protection for many other kinds of information. So if you take your health information in your doctor's record, it's great. But if you post it uh, in a personal health record in an online vehicle that you maintain, it has very little protection. Mm. Um, what uh, you bring up in the book, something called the privacy paradox. What is that? So go back to what you said about restaurants and how, you know, you kind of like that Google search that you do a search on one thing and it starts suggesting other things that you might really be interested in. So the privacy paradox is that People say, my privacy is really important, but they don't behave as though they thought it was important. So there's a tension between what you say you value and what your behavior reveals about what you actually value, because you go and you follow up those Google links. So maybe earlier on, you know, when you were introducing us, you said, I don't know whether it's your own personal view about privacy, but you said, you know, privacy is really important, right? And yet at the same time, people behave as though it weren't. I mean, there is some, there's some survey data that suggests that younger people are much more sophisticated 
by the fact that many people know everything that is posted on the web about them or the choices they make. Older people tend to be surprised at how much information is out there and how people draw connections or look for pattern recognition. And it's one of those we often think of sometimes younger people as being more risk-acceptant, but maybe we could describe them as more realistic about what's out there and the gains they get from such information and the exposure that may also take place. I mean, I still think there's every reason to make people aware that if in some cases they're taking risks by some of the things they seek to find on the net. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I think there is that paradox. The benefits sometimes, depending on the circumstance, out, outweigh the risks. Although, although the I think, and you can see here, John and I don't always share the same view on this. I think the paradox <clears throat> is overrated because I think people's behavior more often than they're aware of reveals a lack of information uh, about the extent to which they actually are protected. So, for example, some um, survey data indicates that people believe that the fact that a website has a privacy policy means that the website protects their privacy. It doesn't. All a privacy policy does is say what the website will do with your data. So it's a privacy policy to say, we're going to stick your data up on the back end of an airplane and fly it across the stadium at the next football game. Hmm. Yeah, that, <laughs> that would bring it in bold relief, wouldn't it? <laughs> it certainly would, but that's a privacy yeah. policy. Now you t- uh, um, John Francis, you talked about the generational divide. Some surveys are, are showing this. Is that, for young people, more aware, perhaps? Is that a resigned awareness, perhaps, or is it, is it an accepting awareness that uh, a lot I of think, the I being... think probably it's a resigned awareness. Uh, I think it's an, it's, you raise an excellent question. I think the, I think the advantage of, I mean, I think for a younger person, if you want a job, if you want to apply for uh, uh, to school, whatever you want to do, you're going to be using, you're going to be involved in the net. And it's, it controls your life. That's actually a lot of your social relationships are framed in that direction. So you assume a lot of information is made available about you. Uh, and so I think in that sense, you're resigned to that, um, to that recognition and um, and you negotiate it. Maybe another way to put it in a slightly different way is that, as we well know, hacking is very common. Health records, large uh, uh, credit rating agencies. In many areas, hacking regularly takes place. So I think for many young people and perhaps for older people, they probably recognize that somewhere, some, some parts of their data are being held heaven knows where in some dark cloud. And so you kind of say, well, what else am I going to do? Am I going to go off the web? Am I going, it's no longer really feasible to apply for a job not going online. So I think that's just the hazard of modern life, that there's a lot of information out there about you, but it doesn't immobilize you from having to use the net. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to ask what we can do to protect ourselves. There are several uh, passages in the book about that. Um, I want to talk uh, about uh, some of these, uh, about our health information. Um, Both of you are are heavily involved in the research in that uh, area. 
um, and much more. We're talking uh, to, with the authors of the book, Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's out from Oxford University Press. Uh, Leslie Francis and John Francis, uh, professors at University of Utah. They're joining us from KUER Studios in Salt Lake City. Our good thanks to the good folks at KUER. And they'll be at the Francis, uh, John and Leslie Francis, will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight, 7 o'clock. You have the opportunity, if you're going to be in the area, to uh, hear a reading from the book and uh, get your book signed there. That's King's English Bookshop tonight, 7 o'clock in Salt Lake City. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the authors of the book, Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's out from Oxford University Press. The authors are Leslie Francis. She's a distinguished professor of philosophy and distinguished Alfred C. Emery professor of law at the University of Utah, where she also serves as director of the Center for Law and Biomedical Sciences. John G. Francis is a professor of political science at University of Utah. They're joining us today from KUER Studios in Salt Lake City, and uh, there's an event you can interact with them uh, tonight, 7 o'clock, at the King's English Bookshop, a reading and book signing there uh, tonight at 7 o'clock in Salt Lake City. You're welcome to join this conversation. We hope that you will get your question or comment through to us. Uh, a couple of methods. Email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And our toll-free phone number, 1-800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, so I, I think we're all aware on one level or another that uh, our information is vulnerable, that it is being tracked, that uh, it, it could get hacked. Um, and uh, so I wonder, uh, first of all, the, before we get into some protections and measures we can take to protect ourselves, how ubiquitous is this? Is it is it more than we assume, more than we know? I think it's actually fairly ubiquitous. I think it's widespread. Uh, you can see um, that the number, one way to look at that, are the number of agencies now advertising on the web that um, offer services to improve your security of your particular business or firm or association. Um, and uh, and there also is increasing investment to try to put up defenses against being hacked. Um, so I think it actually is widespread. I think there are some people associated with the um, with Rand out in uh, Santa Monica who argue that it's it's really ubiquitous. Um, you find hacking everywhere. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a genuine challenge. So uh, protections, I, I think, uh, you know, I'll just take myself. I'm aware that uh, my data is being used, aggregated into big data, you know, and, and even specifically those ads that pop up when I use Google are, are targeted specifically to me. And, you know, I, I've kind of made my peace with that. That What I really worry about is uh, personal information being hacked and then, you know, being widely known. Well, you're right to worry about that. As John said, uh, I think the default position is to assume that information, whether it's information that you've put up or not, information about you is going to be hacked. So what does that mean? The first thing it means is to do your very best to be aware of what information is out there about you in contexts in which it could be damaging. 
So I'm going to give you two illustrations of that. The first is your physician's medical records. Now, that may seem problematic because you don't want somebody to know that you've got a sensitive diagnosis. Or you may think, well, it doesn't really matter because I've never really been sick and my medical record is boring. Well, in both cases, you're actually wrong about what the real risk is of hacking of your medical information. The first is that in your medical record is a lot of information about you that you can't change. Your doctor has your address, your phone number, most likely your social security number, your date of birth, kinds of identifying information that can be used to create an identity about you, but that you you, you can't just change your date of birth or your social security number in your doctor's record like you can change your credit card number or your credit card PIN. You just get a new credit card. You don't get a new you. The second reason why, uh, and I'll use um, credit reporting agencies as an example, the second reason why hacks can be really scary and you ought to try to know what information is in there about you is that there's a significant percentage of erroneous information in people's credit records. So when there was that huge Equifax uh, hack recently, not only was accurate information about people gotten, but inaccurate information. So you don't even know where that's gone. So my first recommendation is to, in sensitive areas where there might be information that you can't readily readily change or where there might be wrong information associated with you, you get a copy of what's there and you correct any mistakes Hmm. so that you just, and also you just make yourself aware of what's out there about you whether or not you've put it in the net. So what you want to be able to do is is essentially realize this may happen, make sure that you can develop your own account of your own credit record or the records that may be pertinent to this situation so that you can give an alternative source when when needed. I mean there's not there's not an immediately easy solution to this. I think it's fair to say, but being aware of it and seeing if you can build an account that you think accurately reflects the aspects of your life that you think have now been exposed, I think is at least the first step. And also possibly, you know, supporting, should there be a greater effort at regulation? Should we put more, should we put the burden on the firm that has been hacked? I'm not saying that's a good idea, but it might be ways to encourage how that firm or future firms will put up better better security regimes in order to stop or at least to reduce the the rate of hacking. Regulation can also come in with the use of information. So credit records can be used to uh, deny you housing or federal subsidies for housing. Well, if there's something erroneous in your credit record that you didn't even know about, you'll just learn you got 
turned down for an apartment. I wonder uh, how much of this, uh, you know, I guess it all goes into one big pot, but, uh, you know, I have friends who uh, try to limit um, what, the, what they themselves put out there, hoping that that will protect themselves a little more. For example, <coughs> you know, example don't join Facebook, don't, uh, don't get on Twitter, um, don't have a LinkedIn account. Uh, so I have friend, some friends that don't use Google, you know, Google's evil, that kind of thing. Um, but I think I hear you saying that's only part of it, that even if you were kind of a neo-Luddite, um, some of your information is going to be out there anyway. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, some of that information is simply um, buying a house, um, having it, it would be the rare person who would probably avoid using credit cards at all. In fact, we're moving increasingly to more of a credit card-based <coughs> world than a cash-based world. So you can certainly reduce the number of organizations having information about you, but I think it's pretty hard to eliminate all connections and in sometimes fairly important information. doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but you shouldn't expect that you can insulate yourself, um, I think, completely effectively. Mm. Yes, I mean, are you going to not have a bank account? Are you going to not go to the doctor? Going off the grid, really, as John said much earlier in the first part of this conversation, are you not going to apply for any jobs? So much of what we do today is through the Internet. The social media part is only a small slice. Mm-hmm. I was reading in reading your book. You reminded me of the Ashley Madison case, oh, um, yes. uh, and 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 the fact that reminded me that this isn't just uh, you know economic loss, you know distress and stress in your life, but uh, some of the people in Ashley Madison uh, committed suicide. So the Ashley Madison case, uh, for people who don't know it, was essentially a dating site for people interested in uh, adultery. And uh, the, uh, the, there was a challenge with that that they, the site said we have high security. As it turned out, the site was successfully hacked by people who – and the hackers were releasing the information um, to selected audiences – and maybe the the risk to kind of think about this uh, is that some of the people using the site were from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where adultery is punishable by death. And so all of a sudden, your names could be exposed in ways that you had never imagined, and the risk you ran could be very a very serious one. So this is maybe a very good example <clears throat> that something that may seem like a dare or some some have some kind of allure <clears throat> for some people, maybe you ought to think twice. Is this something you really should be doing? And um and it I think it actually it is a, quite a danger. Let me actually put this in a in a slightly different context. So in some respects parts of the net remind me of what it might have been like to live in a small town in say nineteen hundred America, maybe a town of a couple of thousand people. In such a town, everybody pretty well knows everyone else's business. Oh, the good news is someone can look after you if you're ill. The bad news is that if your preferences or life doesn't quite meet the standards of the local community, you may feel um, exposed or isolated. So that kind of not having a private life in a small town <clears throat> might be similar to 
using some aspects of the net may also quickly bring home to you that what you're doing is observed by others who may not have your best interest at heart. Mm. That's, a, that's an interesting analogy. Uh, so, but it, I don't know, the, the, the whole wide world of everybody <laughs> seems a little less safe than the small town. Although I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure the small town, you know, always had your bad characters as well. Yeah, well, I think I was thinking of there's a, you know, there's a, a novel, Winesburg, Ohio, which where some of the people, uh, they're, they're looking for anonymity, so they move to New York, right? So, I mean, it, it, just, it just hinges on the nature of the small town. But, I mean, I, what I was really kind of conveying is, yeah, there's a lot of that people aren't necessarily going to beat you over the head in the small town or do terrible things to you. But the idea is that you became conscious of what you did was observed by others. Mm -hmm. And if you hold to the view that you joined this kind of dating site, uh, that somehow you can do it with your anonymity uh, preserved, I think is is highly unlikely and something you should take into account before making such a decision. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really like about John's uh, bringing up the small-town America analogy is that these questions aren't new. They're questions that have been with us since Plato, right? Going back to the Ring of Gyges that I read in the introduction about imagining invisibility. Uh, people have been thinking about these questions for thousands of years. We just have new technologies that are pressing them on us in different ways. Yeah, I mean, in one, I mean another example, <clears throat> I'll draw another example from France because they always have interesting takes on this, is that let's say um, we have children. Let's say I post some pictures of my children in an embarrassing situation because I think um, that would be cute and appealing to our friends on Facebook. Well, if I were French and my kid was really miffed, you could take action against the parents for posting the picture uh, that embarrasses the kid. Now, this is something which... For, you know, for generations, people have circulated pictures of embarrassing moments for their children. But now you have the opportunity to circulate it to a wider audience and thereby increase the level of embarrassment for the kid, not by intention, but by outcome. And I think that's sort of like, so the small town life has now become abstracted to a much broader uh, context. And I think that's what we probably haven't fully uh, estimated. Mm. And I guess the other point from the small town analogy, um, an historical analogy as well, is we're focusing on the on the dangers, right? But there's there's a lot of good from being connected. Oh, I think I mean one of the examples that occurs to me, <clears throat> I think your point is excellent, is that if you go on Facebook and let's say you have a rare medical illness, one of the things you can find are groups of people who share information for that illness. Uh, you know, maybe it's an illness that affects only a small number of people, but it's but the kind of incapacitation that can occur is just enormous. So you can share information, you can learn where there are new medical studies going on. So you have ways of drawing connections that I think are much easier to do today than in the past. I, I know of cases where the use of Facebook was very helpful in developing connections on the Zika virus, right? And so I think um, I think one of that. So you, the good news of the net is that it actually can connect you to people in, in similar situations that can be of enormous benefit. So it shouldn't always be seen as a as something that 
that's scary and dark, it opens opportunities as well. And we should also say that the use of data more generally opens opportunities. So big data isn't just about uh, do you get a recommendation for a restaurant that looks like the other restaurants you've done searches. Big data is being used for public health purposes in fascinating ways. It presents the opportunity to detect outbreaks uh, before they become dangerous in the way Ebola did. It uh, presents the opportunity to find rare side effects of uh, medications. So all kinds of opportunities. So we don't want to come across as anti the use of data. We want, we want to come across in the book as thinking about how data can be used responsibly. We will go to another break here soon. Uh, when I come back from the break, I want to talk about uh, health information, and I'm especially interested in uh, genetic information. And uh, very, very useful. Very people are very interested in that, but uh, then it opens you up to uh, uh, abuses of that if it gets out into the wrong hands. But before we go to the break, I want to loop back to the right to be forgotten. It's very interesting. Yes. And, and uh, John, you said that uh, it's much more accepted, even, I guess, codified into law in, in Europe. Uh, is it is it effective? If, if, if I take steps uh, under this right to be forgotten, uh, are, can I effectively block out uh, portions of my life from uh, on the web? You, it's, actually, it's actually, I think, fairly effective. <clears throat> now, keep in mind that this data may still exist in some archive, in some government record that you, you, you acted badly as, a, as an attorney, but the problem was then eliminated. So that, that still exists. It's simply, though, that a lot, the way we gather information is usually by Googling it. And if you can delete the link, then you've actually gone a long way to help. Now, the, so the, the example that, that I have, I have a, a friend who... Uh, an old friend who lives in a European country. This is a very well-connected person. Much was known about her on the on the net. Um, she moved to have stuff deleted. She's practically disappeared uh, from it. So um, the good news from her point of view is that she she is left alone. She has been forgotten in certain ways. The bad news, I think, is um, this is not a person prominent in politics but in social life. Maybe we should have more information about this person, but it's no longer available. Leslie and I have a difference of opinion. I tend to be more in the right-to-know stuff, and she's more in the right-to-be-forgotten camp. But I think it. But I, the bottom line is the way it works. It's fascinating in Europe. Uh, it's 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 European Union uh, law, but Google is assigned the role to hear the cases, and then it issues a report to the European Union on how many people have submitted, how many times the uh, Google has said, yes, we will delete this, and under what cases they won't delete the link. If you're running for office, they won't delete the link, for example. So, yeah, it's a very effective way. I, my personal belief, it'd be, it would be a hard sell in the United States to have such a rule. Yeah, it's, it seems that way. Leslie Francis, John uh, uh, correctly characterized your view on this? And if so, uh, why are you uh, in favor of a right to uh, so, be forgotten? So uh, it's not only accurate information about people that's out there. Uh, some of the accurate information is information that, that quite rightly 
you might not want to have come up about you. So imagine that for some reason or another, your name as a rape victim has been uh, made public. It's online in a newspaper archive. Do we want to have every search for you under your name have the first hit come up as rape victim? Now, you could still go to the newspaper archive and search for all the rape victims who are mentioned in the newspaper. Maybe that's the way people should be able to find out about that, not with a Google search. Secondly, um, there's a lot of inaccurate information about the about you, and some of the kinds of you know. Imagine somebody in their blog writes uh, something scurrilous about you. Uh, there's a French case about a allegation that a lawyer was debarred, which he was not, but uh, that's what came up when you Googled uh, his name as a lawyer, and he requested de-linking of that blog post. So uh, I think we need to think much more seriously about, and I think Europe does too, about when de-linking should be appropriate. Yeah, but I'm, I don't think we should dismiss it out of hand. No, we shouldn't dismiss it. But but I think it's but probably even better from my point of view is to have the recognition that just because it's available as a link doesn't mean it's true. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we get to educate people, that matters. I worry a little bit in Europe that it's, that it's essentially anyone who's relatively well-educated and sophisticated, you can learn less about them. And I think there can be some cost in having that happen as well. But none of these things are magical, but it does. In fact, you know, as we know, I, I probably get uh, once a week, some firm contacts me and says, we can help you or your organization have a better image on the web. Uh, and I, I belong to some organizations. Uh, just you know, just subscribe to this service, and we'll we'll do cool things for you to get your image on the web. Well, I mean, I don't know what that actually means in reality, but that but it probably those firms are doing less well in Europe than they are in the states, where people are worried about having their reputations compromised or trashed uh, through that. So there's a downside to our kind of free-for-all approach in the U.S., but I still think there's some advantages to it. Well, let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, health information. Uh, We're talking with uh, Leslie Francis and John Francis, professors at University of Utah. Their uh, new book from Oxford University Press is Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know. And uh, they'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight at 7 for a reading and book signing that's free and open to the public. They're joining us from KUER Studios in Salt Lake City. More following this break. Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. We reached our last segment with uh, Leslie Francis and uh, John Francis. They're uh, University of Utah professors. They're joining us from KUER Studios in uh, Salt Lake City. The book uh, just out from or out now from uh, Oxford University Press is Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know. And Leslie and John Francis will be at the King's English Bookshop tonight at 7 in Salt Lake City for a book signing and a reading. You're uh, invited to that. 
so I want to jump into a couple of questions about privacy and health information, and I want to start with uh, what legal protections are there for genetic information? I have a couple of friends who uh, just took, you know, sent off for their genetic information. This, in this case, for for uh, genealogical purposes. Um, but uh, there's a lot of information there, obviously, if you have your genetic information stored somewhere. Yes. So there is a uh, relatively recent federal statute called GINA for short, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which has a specific definition of genetic information, which includes family medical history information and results of genetic tests, and which prohibits uh, either requests or use of it without uh, your consent for uh, two purposes, basically. Um, for uh, employment purposes. So your employer can't ask whether you've had a test for Huntington's disease or whether somebody in your family has Huntington's disease or even whether uh, somebody in your family has cancer. And your employer can't... So that's employer. The other prohibition is health insurance, uh, Gina does not uh, protect you once disease has been manifest in you yourself. So if you actually get breast cancer, uh, you're not protected by Gina. You're only protected against requests about whether your mother had breast cancer. Uh, and Gina doesn't protect you uh, from any other kinds of uses of genetic information to turn you down for credit or a mortgage or life insurance. Uh, life insurance, disability insurance, those are important kinds of insurance. In the health space now, with uh, a prohibition on underwriting for pre-existing conditions under the Affordable Care Act, Gene has actually become less important than it was when it was originally enacted. But that's what we've got, uh, Gina. So, I mean, I'm, I'm involved in a, with some colleagues in a survey of people and their willingness or unwillingness to share family health, uh, family genetic or health histories. Uh, and um, one of the findings in the literature, which we're testing, is that sometimes the people le- less likely to share information are people who are the most vulnerable. They're in minorities where they feel they're more at risk of employment discrimination or social discrimination. And yet, as I understand it, and I'm not a medical person, um, genetic information is often valued in healthcare treatment. So the question is, how do you assure people, or can you assure people, to share such information? And of course, it isn't just you. It might be that you need uh, information from your siblings, your cousins, your parents. And so it's not it's actually a fairly complicated case when people want to share uh, family genetic histories if it involves more than just one person. Yes, I should say one of the reasons people have thought genetic information was special is that it gives in- information at least potentially relevant information about family members, not just about yourself. 
Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Yeah, yeah it, it, it does include information just right there uh, about your whole family. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left to maybe give you each a minute to uh, put this in context. The takeaway here: what, uh, how best uh, should we uh, should we frame thinking about issues of privacy? So I think we should frame issues of privacy about becoming better informed about what kinds of uses of data are possible, what their benefits are, and what their risks are. And when I say we, I say we not only as individuals, but we as members of a democratic society, because a lot of What's at issue here can't just be done by individuals. It re- may require regulatory protection. I can't put in the security stuff about my doctor's record, just to give you one quick example. Yeah, so I, I, th- I think the, the question about privacy is, as we began this discussion, there are many ways to think about privacy. But the one theme or that I see that of great importance is the notion of being able to have, at least in some parts of your life, some measure of autonomy, some some area where you seem to have a relatively high level of privacy, which requires in an ever-changing world that we're, that we're in that you kind of think through about the information that you can keep or the space that you can defend. And so that learning about privacy and its many manifestations is probably more important than ever. So we think it's a a key issue to learn about, and also to recognize that it's a changing issue. We have uh, been talking with Leslie and John Francis. Their book is Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's out from Oxford University Press. They have joined us from KUER Studios in Salt Lake City. Uh, You have an opportunity to interact with them tonight. If you're going to be in the Salt Lake City area, they'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight at 7 for reading and book signing. Uh, Leslie Francis, John Francis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. We enjoyed it very much. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.